0: Grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. I like the Psalms because if you don't know anything about the Bible, you can just open your Bible right up to the middle. And it's the biggest book in the whole Bible. And so just flop your Bible open right in the middle and you're going to be near it. Uh, We have some Bibles uh, down the center aisle underneath the chairs there. And if you'd like to use those and I'll welcome you to uh, that can be uh, your gift from us. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and use that during the service. But also take it with you. Uh, we use the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, if you're going to use that Bible, just turn to page 304. Uh, I'm on page 568, so I don't know if that's going to help you or not in my Bible. <laughs> so if you've got, you got a Bible just like my exactly like mine, then 568 is the page you need to be on. All right, so our tradition is we, uh, we read these out loud. The words will be on the screen. And uh, don't worry, some people are going to join in with you if it seems like you're like, talking only by yourself. Uh, let's go ahead and read this together after I see everybody's there. You guys there? Y'all going to cheat and just look at the screen, right? Here we go. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause and thank you for the day. Thank you for the sun that rises, that reminds us of new mercy and grace today, and we confess that we need it. God, we are a needy people, and we thank you that you not only put up with us, but the scripture tells us that you love us steadfastly. I thank you for your gospel. I pray that uh, we would hear it in this psalm today. These words that we have read that were written thousands of years ago by a a master psalmist. And Lord, I pray that as we hear your gospel, we will receive it and that you would change us in its hearing. And I pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, "Amen." amen and amen. So have you ever had a moment where you did something that you regret it and you want to take it back? I mean, have you ever said something that you just wish you could, as it's going through the air, you wish you could just grab it and like, I need that back. Have your emotions ever led you to a place where you knew you shouldn't do something, but you did it? Where you knew you should stop right in the midst of doing it, but you can't? You don't walk away when you should. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been in one of those situations where you desperately want to stop or take back, don't do what you know you shouldn't do, but yet you do it anyway? And of course, immediately after you do what you know inside you shouldn't do, you feel guilty, you feel sorrowful, you feel remorse. Perhaps you even feel condemnation. I think unless you're five years old in this room, all of us have been there, right? We've, we've all had those moments where something we knew we shouldn't have done, either because our mom told us not to or our spouse or something inside of us or perhaps even the words of Scripture have forbidden us to do those things. And yet we do them. We've all felt these circumstances and times when the weight of our wrongdoing, our, our sin, if you are familiar with that word, hits us and it doesn't leave us. You feel the weight and the gravity of your sin, And this is what the psalmist does for us today. He helps us understand what these feelings are and what to do with them. He helps us to understand what we should do with our guilt. We are in a series called Summer in the Psalms. And as I expressed last week when we uh, opened up with Psalm 1, the Psalms are the perfect place to go in the Bible. Not the only place, but one of the perfect places to go uh, where we see real people in real situations express their real The real tragedies of life with the emotion that we also feel in our lives today. And we see how uh, the Psalms are able to resolve those. And we definitely see that here in Psalm 51. And so Psalm 51 is going to give us this, this, I mean, really up close picture of what to do when sin happens and, and, and the guilt that results from it. And how to go on with life after that? And I think, in in listening to this, the words of this psalm and and dealing with it in our own hearts today, perhaps God may help some of us out a bit. Psalm fifty one shows us the that the remedy for our guilt is is this big R word called repentance. And if you're new to church or uh, I, I don't know, maybe never opened up the Bible, that might be a new word for you, but. This this word repentance is replete in the Bible. It's it's from cover to cover. We see from the Old Testament manuscripts all the way to the book of Revelation. uh, Several people that espouse that repentance is firstly the way that we come into relationship with God. But repentance is also that means by which God grows us in our faith to be closer to him. And I think we'll see that through David's life today. I think the Bible is a testament that repentance is needed. It's essential for all of us to have a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the the prophets uh, echoed as they gave God's commands, his laws to the nation of Israel. uh, Do these things. If you don't do them, there's going to be repercussions. And when you do them and feel the guilt of your of your wrongdoing, of your sin, then you're supposed to repent. And then when we cross over into the New Testament, we hear John the Baptist, the, the, uh, a man who came as a prophet in the, in the likes of the Old Testament prophets. And he was a, a forerunner to, to Jesus. And John the Baptist's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus comes. John baptizes him in the Jordan River. Jesus goes and he's tempted in the desert by by Satan and immediately starts his His mission, his ministry on the earth. And Jesus echoes these same words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then subsequent to that in the acts of the apostles, all those people that that walked with Jesus. And then he turned over his mission to them to go and evangelize the known world. Their message was. That repentance not only gets you into the kingdom, gets you into relationship with God, but repentance is that thing that helps you grow in your faith. It's that thing that we need to return to over and over again as the means by which God restores us when we do what we should not do, even if you know you're not supposed to do it. Here's where this hits home, I think. Uh, you know, I, this is we're a mixed crowd and very likely some of you are new to church. Some of, some of you have probably been in church Much of your life. But there's very likely, even in a crowd of this size, some who have never repented. You don't even know what the word means. It it doesn't make it's not something that you have done before. That's not a slide against you. There are some of you who have been to church all your life. And I would tell you that you have never repented. At least not repented the way that David prescribes repenting here. And then there are likely some of you who know what know know what repentance is. You, You actually know what you're supposed to do. But there's probably weeks, months, possibly even years gone by that you have not repented. And so hear God's words today. Hear the words of Psalm 51 and see repentance as a gift. That's what God presents it as a gift, his gift of grace toward us so that we might grow in grace towards him. Here's what's unique about Psalm 51. Uh, and I, I like this. The subtitle gives us this I, I, an idea of what this song was about. I don't know if you ever. I don't know when you y'all read the Psalms. Have you ever taken notice of the little bitty writing is like in six point font? That's why I got glasses on. And, uh, for example, this says to the choir master that tells us this was this was. I mean, why would you give words to a choir master so they can sing them? Right. So David was was writing this a Psalm of David means he wrote it. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. These aren't extra words. These are actually part of the psalm. And all the psalms don't have these little uh, subtitles, but most of them do. And they are in the original manuscripts to let us know what the situation was, what the emotion was being felt, what the, what the, the tragedy was, what the predicament of life was when the person who authored the psalm actually, um, what, we, what they were going through when they wrote these words. And so... These are the words of David. And David was in a mess. And what this song points to is the narrative of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I wish we had two hours because I mean, this is just it's just enlightening what David got himself into. You all have heard David's story. He was the the, the runt of the litter of, amongst several uh, boys of stature and uh, a prophet comes looking for the next king to replace Saul and comes to David's home and he looks at all the sons and he, he runs through him and says no that's not it that's not it he's not it he's not it do you have any more sons and then he's and they bring David from the, from the fields shepherding sheep and David is recognized as the next king to take over the kingdom of Israel from Saul and then he eventually uh, does take over the kingdom and this incident that we're going to look at very shortly here is in the midst of him reigning over all of Israel and Judah. And so uh, these words aren't going to be on the screen, but turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I'm going to be in and out of the scripture. Some I'm just going to explain to you and other parts of it I'm going to read to you. Second Samuel 11. This is what it says in the beginning of that, um, in the beginning of, of this narrative. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... So David should have been at war. David sent Joab, that's the general of his army, and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So David was the king. The king usually went out to battle with his army. And for whatever reason, we're not told why, David decides to stay back. And what happens next is is what got him in trouble. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the house. Of the king's house. He's walking on top of his own house that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, it's not that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. He came to uh, she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. She was a married woman. David actually is a married man with several wives and concubines. He's the king of Israel. He's in a predicament. I mean, he's in a hole, right? He's done something that he knows not to do. There were like all kind of warning signs. Stop. Don't do it. And he does it anyway. And so David had to solve a problem. He had a pregnant woman. He was a pregnant woman that wasn't his wife. Who belonged to someone else. And so, guess what David does? I'm going to tell you the rest of it. He sends out to his army at war for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to come back. And David, um, trying to figure out how to solve this problem, tells Uriah, Go into your wife. And Uriah, being a noble man, says, Hey, the army's at war. I'm a soldier. I should be out there with him. I'm only coming back because you told me to. And so he doesn't go into his wife. He lies on the front stoop of his house. And so David goes to plan B. He invites Uriah in and he gets him drunk, wines and dines him, thinking that that's going to loosen him up, both his lips and his body. And he says, go have fun with your wife for the night. And Uriah goes, but he doesn't go home. He goes and hangs out with David's David's uh, servants, not doing what David told them to do. and So David goes to plan, uh, plan C. Now, when you got to go to plan C, you know something's wrong. It's just, it's just downhill from there. So plan C is, all right, David broke out a piece of paper. He wrote a, he, he wrote a manuscript. Uh, Joab, Jariah's coming back, and I'm in trouble. He didn't say this. I'm at All right, forgive me. Send him to the front lines. Put him at the fiercest part of the battle. And so he does that. Um, and Joab puts Uriah in the very fiercest part of the battle with some of the toughest fighting, and Uriah is killed. The word gets back to David. Um, David, after a time of mourning with Bathsheba, brings her back in to be his wife, and they have a child. And then we get to, if that would, I mean, that's just bad stuff, right? That's not it. The story doesn't end there. 2 Samuel 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, And he came, Nathan's, David's prophet, his seer, he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. He's telling a story. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it. He brought it up and grew it with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsels and drink his cup and lie in his arms. And so really uh, the picture. A rich man with everything he could ever want, and then a, a poor man, and all they had really to, uh, to appease themselves was what they could eat every day, but they had a pet lamb, and they treated it like almost a part of their family. And so the story goes that the rich man has a guest come over, and instead of slaughtering one of his own plentiful uh, lambs, he goes and takes the lamb of the poor man, slaughters it, serves it to his guests, and... Nathan likens this story to David taking Bathsheba from Uriah. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man. You're like this rich man that's taken all that a poor man would have. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you ma- your master's house and your master's wives into the uh, into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord has put away your sin; you shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. The child that's born to you shall die." All right. So David, there there is both consequence for sin. But there's also the grace of God that comes from David's sin, and we see this in this psalm. There's a, there's a lot of takeaways from Psalm 51. I haven't even gotten to Psalm 51 yet. I just got, I had to give you all that background story, right? But there's there's, there's some takeaways from Second Samuel, and here's and these are aside from what I'm going to talk to you about in Psalm 51. The first is simply this: when you think you've covered up your sin, God still knows. God still knows. I mean, he's like Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake. I, you can't liken God to Santa Claus, but I mean, you you know what I mean? You cannot hide from God. Even if no one knows, God still knows. This is a crazy one here, but you know, a woman was bathing on the rooftop, and she was very beautiful. So, ladies. This is a lesson learned from that. Don't do that. I mean, gosh, help a brother out. Don't do that. There are some times where you should adorn yourself with clothes. And I would tell you, whenever you are outside of your house, put some clothes on, even if it's your roof. That was for free. The second one. I'm not even going to count that as one of them. I don't have that written down. Secondly, and we see this in David's life. God will send someone into your life when you are in sin. And so perhaps you've seen this. Perhaps you're here today because a friend invited you and they're trying to subliminally tell you, hey, you got sin in your life. And I want my pastor to tell you about it. And I'm going to do it. I'm not going to tell you what your sin is, but I'm going to tell you if you're in sin. God knows. I don't know, but he knows. And then what we learned from Psalm 51 is is how to repent um, this. Psalm 51 is David's repentance. So in that last part of 2 Samuel 12, where we hear that David was emotional and he's replying back to to Nathan, his prophet, that, oh, man, I messed up. I've done some stuff that I should not do. And I feel it. That was his repentance. And then he wrote Psalm 51. He wrote Psalm 51. So the question we want to ask very quickly here this morning is how do we turn from sin? How do we. How do we turn from doing that thing that we want to do that, you know, the, the, the warning signs are saying, stop, don't go that way. Don't do it. But we've done it already. And we got to live with ourselves after the fact. We learn three things from David. And those three things are uh, in, in terms of what repentance requires. The first is acknowledge your sin before God. The second is appealing to God. And the third is turning to God in obedience. The beginning of our repentance is to acknowledge our sin. So let me first define uh, a couple words that I've used uh, several times. The first is repentance. Repentance. I mean, we don't use that word a lot in in our day, but it's a word that's that's all over the Bible. And it is a word that you should be familiar with as a person who is uh, espousing to be in relationship with God. Repentance is not feeling sorry for your sin. Repentance isn't even remorse. because I would tell you, remorse is simply being sorry that you got caught. Repentance, however, is the grace of God that comes to you to see that you are doing something and it's not in line with what God would have you do. And it's turning from that thing that you're doing, that sin, and choosing to turn the opposite way, to stop what you're doing, turn the opposite way. Repentance is a change of your mind because that's where our sin starts. That leads to a change of heart, because if your heart doesn't change, you're not going to stop. That leads to a change in your life. And everybody in here, from me on down to the youngest person, needs our, our, our lives changed. And So this is the definition of sin. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you a straight up definition of sin, because a lot of times we, we reject that word. In fact, societally, um, we think that sin happens horizontally. And so what I mean by that is unless I, I can do anything I want, okay, we, you can do anything you want. In life, in in regards to you, yourself, and you, but the moment what you do affects someone else, that's the only time it it breaches over into the area of sin. That's that's really how society would define sin. You can stay in your own little bubble and do what you want, but when you affect someone else, when you hurt someone, that would be uh, morally wrong to do. And I would tell you the Bible, I mean, that's kind of right in terms of, you know, perspective, but the Bible has a different perspective of sin, of sin altogether, and this is the perspective that the Bible has of sin, and it's that sin means to miss the mark. It's like you're an archer, and you got your bow and arrow, and you're pulling it back, and you got a target down the way, and you, uh, you know, as best you can, aim it, let go of the bow, let go of the arrow, and it completely misses the target that was intended. Sin is missing The target its missing the mark. It's missing the target that God would have for you in terms of his standard for your life in his world. Paul says in Romans 323 that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That means that all of us, from the oldest to the youngest, fall short of God's perfection, God's holiness. We miss his mark. And that really is what David is doing here. He is saying that I've missed God's mark and he acknowledges His sin in that regard. I'm going to start in verse three. Verse three says, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And so David is insinuating. He's like, I go to bed. and It's with me. I wake up and it's with me. I'm trying to eat cereal and it's with me. I'm going to work and it's with me. I cannot get these thoughts out of my head. What I've done is plaguing me. It's like something that I cannot even shake, whether I want to or not. I mean, have you have you ever done something that that was so bad? at least for you and your circumstance, that you cannot get over it. You can't stop thinking about it. It's like haunting you. That's what's going on in David's life. It's just there. And and not only is it there, he's replaying the scenario over and over and over in his mind. And that's that's the that's that's really the circumstance, but also possibly the Holy Spirit speaking to you in regards to what you've done. This is David experiencing that same thing. And honestly, I think that's why 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is, gives us so much detail. David is, he, he's reminded of all these actions, so much so that the, the, the writer there is able to capture all that David went through and articulate it for us. Firstly, that it would be recorded in Scripture that, of God's great grace, but more so that, that David had these things going on and still was able to be called a man after God's own heart, which is just a miracle. A miracle. So David acknowledged his sin for what it was. But but he also acknowledged who his sin was against. Verse four, against you, you only. He's talking to God against you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, our reaction to this might be a little mixed because I just read the story. And so what about what about Bathsheba? I mean, he sinned against her. What about Uriah that he had killed? I mean, David has like fresh blood on his hands. He didn't kill him outright with his own hands, but surely he's the one that sent Uriah to a, a certain death. And then David, as the leader of this great nation, sinning publicly, that you, you have to know this wasn't a secret. If David had servants, everybody knew about David and Bathsheba. Likely before Uriah did. I, Uriah never knew about it. And so David sinned against God. And and because he was a leader of this great nation, he sinned against that whole nation and subjected them to the very wrath of God. And so does David forget about adultery and murder in this comment that against God you only have I sinned? I would say no. I think David is highlighting something very profound here about repentance, about our repentance when we do wrong. David didn't look at things just horizontally. It's my sin, it only affects me, and so you don't have to worry about it. He saw his sin as being a vertical thing, as his life firstly being lived upward toward God before it's lived horizontally around other people. And so David said, I've grieved and hurt the heart of God with my sin. And so here's the issue of, this is what we usually do. We oftentimes think of sin in lesser ways than it it really is. We, We say stuff like, you know, I've got my issues. I've got things that I have to work through. I've got some personality stuff going on. That's the reason why I sin." And I would tell you, those statements are very much true for all of us. I mean, I'm not taking that away from you. But the truth is, we don't call our sin sin. We don't call it what it is. And. The the commendable thing is David calls his sin what it was. We call our sin something else. David's saying, I've missed God's standard. I'm grieved about it that I that I've ultimately hurt God. Verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is convinced that from the womb we're all we're all sinful. And of course, there's several of you pregnant here in our church. And you're gonna have, I mean, in weeks, some of you months, you're gonna have these beautiful little boys and girls, and they're just gonna be like nicely dressed and those sweet purrs, not purrs, what do, what do kids do? I don't even, it's, it's so long. Coos, thank you, Blake. Nice little coos, and they'll spit up on you, you think that's cute, and then they cry and poop, and you know, it's all the beautiful things that babies do. This is what David's saying that little baby, he's a sinner. He was a, he was sitting before he came out of the womb. That's what David. That's what he's saying. And I know that's hard for us to grab hold of. But and those, those are contentious words. But this is what he's saying. And the Bible backs that up. Psalm 14, two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven. He's looking down on all of us, on the children of man to see if there's any, anyone at all who understand, who seeks after God. Verse three, they've all turned aside together. They've become corrupt. We're bad people. There's none. Emphasize N-O-N-E. None. None means no one. No one who does good. Not even one. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 139, 23 and 24. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and leave me in the way everlasting. This, this word grievous is the word anxious, anxiety. He's saying, all right, so, Lord, look in my mind first. And then look in my heart. And, you know, there's a, there's a huge distance. It's like 18 inches between all of our heads and our hearts. And you can know something, but it takes a lot and it takes a long time for what you know to trickle down that thick head of yours and get to your heart. And He's saying, Lord, look at my head, look at my heart. And if you see some if you see some some anxious toil, then you got to deal with me because I don't see it and I don't know it and I need help. You know, David wasn't just general with his sin. He was very specific with it. Check out these words that he used. Verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be made clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I mean, do you, do you hear the words he's using? I've got them highlighted on the screen. Purify, cleanse. My sin is ever before me. Verse 3 Purge me, make me clean, wash me, make me whiter than snow. This is, a, this is ancient Near Eastern time. They don't have washing machines. What's David talking about? I, here's a segue. All right, so 20 years ago, I was a new lieutenant, and I was in Operation Desert Storm. And I, the Army gave me, for this, this 100-hour war, they gave me two uniforms. I was there for seven months. Seven months. Y'all say Seven months. I had two uniforms, and we washed them ourselves, right? So I only got to wash clothes once a week, and it was cold water from a water buffalo, this big tank with water in it. Those were some nasty clothes, right? So this is ancient Near Eastern people. They didn't have washing machines like y'all have now. So to get stuff clean, they, had, they put... They ran cold water from whatever the stream nearby was and they stomped on their clothes and they beat the dirt out. And this is what David is saying. He said, I don't have a washing machine, Lord, but I got some dirt in my body and it's in my clothes and it's like infiltrated my life. And I need you to wash me out, stomp it out, beat it out, whatever you got to do, purge it out of me. I love this word that he uses in verse seven. He says, cleanse me with purge me with hyssop. And you can't look at Wikipedia and figure out what hyssop is, because I don't know if I don't even know if we have this plant around anymore. But hyssop is a is a branch with a beautiful little small flower on it, and we introduced it in the Bible, and uh, in the Exodus, and the Israelites are about to be rescued, redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and God has brought plagues on Egypt to get Pharaoh to release them. And so God says before he invokes this last plague of killing the firstborn son, he says, go get a branch, a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of a slaughtered lamb and smear it over the door. And everybody that's behind the door of this uh, of this hyssop blood smeared door, I'm going to pass over. I'm going to sa- I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you from the plight of my wrath. And so this is what David is likening. And this really is the gospel here in the song. David is looking back. He's looking back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. and He's seeing how God rescued them and saved them, how he made those who were no people into God's own people. He's looking at this this redemption wrought through the hands of Moses and of this blood speared on a door and those behind it would be saved from, from the very wrath of God that they deserve because they're sinful people. And so David is looking back in his own life, brought from a, the lowly life of a, a little shepherd, tending sheep, hanging out with bears and lions and tigers. Oh, my. You know, all that stuff. He's doing that. And God took a simple man and brought him into the, the prosperity of being the king of Israel. And he's saying, God, you've done all this in my life. And I've sinned against you and I don't deserve your greatness and your goodness, but you're giving it to me anyway. Not because of me and my faithfulness, because I haven't been faithful. You're doing it because of your own faithfulness toward me. That's the gospel. David saw that in all that was going on. And he turned to God because of his ability to look back and see all that God has done. And we have the opportunity as well to turn to God, to look back and see God's redemption, not just in the, in the pages of the Bible, but to see all those places in your life where you've messed up, where you've missed it. But God has loved you anyway, not because of your faithfulness, not even because of your unfaithfulness, because you're always unfaithful to him, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus. The man who, who took hyssop and put it on the doorframe of your life and he died on the cross in your place for your sin. That's the gospel. I would ask, what are your sins? What are the ways you're falling short? What sins do you need to acknowledge before God? So the first thing that we need to do in repentance is acknowledge our sin. The second is simply appeal to God. And when David appealed to God, he wasn't appealing to the merits of how good he performed as the king of Israel or anything good that he had done. He was appealing to God based upon God's grace and his mercy. You know, when I think of my own sins and how I, you know, how I react to the sin in my life, there's, there's four ways, really. There's, there's a lot of ways, but four general ways that most of us face our own sin. The first is we justify. I'm, I'm pretty good at justifying. It. Another way of saying that is rationalize. How do you rationalize away the things that you've done? When we justify, we say, you know what? I, I know I did this, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. I mean, look what you did. I mean, gosh, I'm not that bad. I mean, do you... Do Y'all look at me like I'm crazy. I'm I'm, I'm looking at you back. <laughs> the second thing we do is we, we rename it. And so when we rename our sin, pornography is is it's not a bad thing. It's just immorality. When we rename our sin, adultery is messing up. It's, it's I made a mistake. When we rename our sin, anger issues is just being I, I'm, a, I'm just emotionally passionate about everything. And when someone just gets up in my grill, I just I get emotionally passionate back to them. <laughs> To rename our sin is I'm not codependent. I just like having a lot of sexual relationships, but you got to recognize all these are sins. They're, they're all just sins. The third way um, that we face our sin is some of us just completely feel condemned by our sin, and what I think that means is we're, I mean we're crushed by it. our sins, are like weighing us down, and it's if we're just crawled up in a corner and we can't do anything. We feel the weight of our sin and everything that we do, and so we do nothing. We do nothing to get out of our sin. We do nothing to uh, to try and reach out to those who could possibly help us. And then fourthly is um, we do penance. And it's, this is not just the Catholic church. If you've been Catholic, then you're very familiar with penance. Penance is like I'm going to do something to make up for what I've done. But all of us do that. We we try to make up for what we've done typically by our performance. A lot of times we'll say these words. I'll never do that again. I will never do that again. So help me. Gosh, I'll never do that again. All right. We do that with diets, don't we? All y'all chocolate eaters and you know, all the, you know, all the kind of diets that are out there. I love myself some chocolate, but I cannot stay away from it. I'll, and then you pig out on chocolate and you say, I'll never do that again. Lustful thoughts, gossip. I'll never do those things again. And when we do them, because we're going we're to do them, we beat ourselves up internally. We might even abase ourselves to make up for our sin. And the reason why these don't work is because they're in our head. They're not in our heart. And we're trying to earn back our way to God. We're saying, God, I'll prove myself to you by simply how I perform. Uh, David really isn't doing that. But there are there's a glimpse of of this in his writing. Verse 16 and 17, David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you'll not despise. And so David wasn't justifying. He wasn't necessarily naming. And he he actually lifted the condemnation. Eventually, that was over him. But I think. I think David contemplated a little bit of penance. He's like, God, if, if there's if it's like three things I could do, give me three things. One, two, three. I'll do them. If you want me to go slaughter 100 cows, I will do that just to get out of the weight of my sin. But then he came to his senses and realized that he didn't need to throw himself, not necessarily by on on his own merit. He did throw himself on the very mercy of God. And that's what David does. He throws himself on the mercy and the grace of God. You've heard that word a lot. Right. Grace, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God giving you something you don't deserve, but he gives it to you anyway, not based upon your goodness, but based upon his goodness. And David gave grace to David. You can't earn grace. David somehow realizes that he couldn't pull himself by his own bootstraps. There was nothing that he could do to fix himself. There was nothing David could have done to fix his circumstance. All he could do is throw himself on God's mercy. And maybe perhaps God would pull him out from this hole that he had dug for himself. And he shows us that in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blood out my transgressions. David goes to God, and he appeals to God. He appeals to God in terms of God's compassion. There's two special things I want you to see here, and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to articulate them as as good as it it is in this passage. Uh, Many translations for the word mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, use the word compassion. The NASB uses the word compassion. The NIV uses the word compassion. Uh, The New Living Translation uses uses the word compassion. The, The uh, the ESV that I'm reading out of uses the word mercy and, and it's fine. But this is what the the feeling that we should get out of out of what David is conveying here. And I'll explain it this way. You know, we've had three kids. My wife has given birth to all of them, all all through cesarean births. OK. And I, we equally love our children, love them to death. I, I would say there's no difference in quality and quantity of how much love that we have. For our kids, but I think for any mother, definitely a mom that gave birth through cesarean, I mean, like cutting open, pulling that baby out. Gosh. All right. All right. right, That's too much information. Right. Sorry. Especially for those who are pregnant. Sorry. I need to repent. I can't take those words back. They're out there. Got it. All right. So God forgive me. So think about it. I mean, there's there's this thing between there's a connection between my wife and my kids that as a father, I love my kids, but I don't understand the connection from from carrying those kids, nine months from birthing them. however you birth kids, Try to make up for it, try to perform. All right there's a connection there, and so what David is getting at is, is an aspect of mercy and compassion that's a motherly feeling. And David is appealing to God's special compassion with someone that he's in relationship with, and so he's saying, "I know you have this special compassion for me and." And this is the this is the real deal about it. It's compassion for me in the middle of all my mess. I've messed up. I've sinned and I cannot take it away. I can't dig myself out of the mess I'm in. And you love me anyway. You're not against me. You're for me. I don't understand it. But you are. And I would tell you some of you all need to hear that. Some of you all. And I don't know who you are. I don't know what your situation is. You're in some mess. And God loves you in the midst of your mess. He does. And you don't have to understand it, but just know that he does. And then he He gives these words, steadfast love. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word hesed, and it's this, it conveys the feeling of God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness towards you. When we trace the covenant that the, the The idea of covenant through the Bible is is this perspective that God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Um, You can see this in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when God initiated a covenant with with Abraham, who we call the father of the faith. And so God relates to us when we don't deserve being related to him. And that is really the gospel. This covenant is is conveyed in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah thirty one. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God. And they shall be my people and no longer shall each of them teach uh, his neighbor and his, each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. These are the words of the prophet to a nation that was that was in exile. And God was foreseeing a time through the prophet Jeremiah when he would restore all that they had messed up. And and they had they had sought other gods when they knew the one true God performing miracles right before them. They had messed up and they couldn't have dug themselves out of the, the slavery that they had put themselves in because of their sin. And so these these words of Jeremiah are are God's covenant to us. And he's saying because of God's grace, because of what Jesus does on the cross, God doesn't deal with us in accordance with our unfaithfulness because we are unfaithful to God. But accordance to Jesus faithfulness, his obedience, his perfection and his holiness. You know, sometimes you might think this to yourself, you know, I I, I'm all right with God and his covenant. I really believe that. That sounds good for me. But honestly, I just can't forgive myself. I mean, I've messed up and I just cannot get over what I've done. I, I can't forgive myself. And I would tell you those those words sound good. They actually make you sound spiritual, but they're unbiblical. There's nothing in the Bible that says I'm supposed to forgive myself, because what you do when you say that is you put you elevate yourself above above God's level. God says he says, receive my son and I'll forgive you. He says by the blood of Jesus and his cross. I've I've forgiven you of your sin. I've taken your iniquity from you. I've taken it from you and put it on Jesus, called you righteous. And you're going to say, I can't forgive myself. And that's that's just wrong thinking. And it's our sin, our self-righteousness that keeps us from God. Lastly, David says we have to turn to God. We have to turn in obedience to God. So this is for all of you that feel like you have to do something. There is something to do. But it's not the it's not the steps of follow this rule, do this next. And then here, well, ah, God's going to make you feel better. You're going to be happy again. Actually, the 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 thing that you do is you have to turn back from your sin toward God. And we see this also in this psalm. Verse six says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in secret heart. So David says, put truth in me, God, on the inside. Again, there's there's this long distance between your head and your heart. And David knew in his head that adultery and murder were wrong, but he did it anyway. And I would tell you, all of us, even the the small sins that we perform. But sometimes those big things, things that the Bible says do things that our parents told us not to do, things that you as a parent tell your kids not to do. We lead. I mean, we head straight to it, don't we? Because sometimes the rules are in our head, but they're not in our heart. And I will tell you, there are churches all over the world, not just America, all over the world, not just Christian churches, all kind of churches where there are rules in our head, but they haven't filtrated into our heart. And places where you have rules in your head, but that there's not the conviction in your heart, that's called legalism. Right. And we don't want to be a church full of legalists. We want to have the laws of God written on our heart that we know what to do because God's put it in us to do it. And that's what David is getting at here. I delight, Lord, in your truth, in the inward being. He says, put 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 what's right, not just in my head, put it in my heart. That's where the secrets are kept. And I can't even there's a lock, There's a key in a lock there and I can't even open it up. So help me out there. Verse 10 and 12 created me a clean heart. We sang this song this morning. Keith Green song. Create in me, O God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. Casting not away from your presence. We should sing it all together. Holy hands. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is how you know you're truly repenting. David says three things. Firstly, you are truly internalizing the truth. Your heart of, of stone has been turned into a heart of clay that God can can form. He's stomped out of you. He's beat out of you. The sin and your heart is clean. It doesn't mean it's going to stay clean, but it's clean because God has applied the blood, the blood of his the blood of his son died on the cross into your sin. And he's declared you righteous. Secondly, you're surrendered to God. He says, cast me that away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And here's the issue here. We desire. I mean, we're surrendered to God. We're we're not we're not afraid to go into his presence as if God is going to send me to Africa, me a missionary, send me to Africa. No, God just wants to get close to you. He wants to put the Holy Spirit in you so that his, his laws are not just up here. They're down here and you're carrying them with you everywhere you go. And it's not a have to. It's I get to I get to follow God, not with my head, but with my whole heart. Verse 12 and 13. Uh, Actually, I read read verse 12. Verse 13. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I think if you really experience repentance, then you have a passion to share this with other people. And so David is saying to his God, he said, Lord, do this for me. Take my sin from me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Purify me. Do whatever you got to do, because I can't even do it to myself. And he says, when you do that, I'm going to have joy. How will I know I've truly repented? I, I'm going to have truth not in my head. I'm going to have it in my heart. I'm going to carry it around with me. I'm going to feel clean. I might not stay clean, but I know how I can return to you and get clean again. And then he says, I'm going to have joy. How do you know if you've truly repented? I think the old words of Jesus um, proves true. You, you feel freedom. he when the sun sets free, Is free. You feel free. And so today, if you feel sin, if you've sinned and you feel stuck in your sin, the the place where you get to that you feel free means that you have God has cleansed you from your sin. And the other thing is joy. God restores the joy of your salvation. And I think what he's doing here, taking you all the way back, taking you back to the place where your salvation was fresh and it was just like new When the Bible, when the Bible just the words of the Bible just jumped off the page to you, where the spirit was sweet to you, where your time with God was it was just enjoyable. He said, Lord, take me back to those times, created me a clean heart and give me all those times where I was really free to worship you and I welcomed your presence. And I was I had joy. And then what I'll do is I'll go tell everybody else the thing you've done for me. You know, Sin is a delicate matter and we don't want to go telling ours. I mean, everybody can't handle your sin. But I would tell you, God didn't put you on this earth and then free you from your junk just to keep it to yourself. He meant for you to go in your freedom and in your joy, the joy of God, and take it into a dark world where other people are trapped by the, the darkness of their own sin. You don't have to be you don't have to give too much information, but he, he, he wants us. To use the light of the gospel in our own heart to shed the light of the gospel on other people who don't know about Jesus. And so as I close, I would ask you, I mean, what's your sin? Have you acknowledged your sin before God? And if you have, have you I mean, if you if you're still feeling the weight of sin in your life, have you have you thought about appealing to God? of of just falling on your face in mercy toward God and ask and just tell him, Lord, I I can't even dig myself. I don't have a shovel that's deep enough to dig myself out. Have you asked God to help you turn from your sin back to him that he might cleanse you, put his law from your head to your heart and give you joy, the joy of of your salvation? And so as I close, let's do something. I don't know. Let's do some old school, almost like that old school song we sang today. Let's repent. Let's repent. David doesn't tell us how to repent, but I don't think you need to know how to repent. I think you just need to know that you need to cry out to God. Lord, I've got some stuff in my life. You need to be specific about it because God can handle your specificity. And then you need to appeal to God for his compassion and then ask him to cleanse you, but more than that, ask him to free you from your sin and give you joy. Can we do that? And so even, as we, even before we come to communion today, even before we sing a song, let's pause and let's do what the old school saints did. I'm not going to call oh, I'm not, we're not going to come up here to the front. I'm not going to ask you to do anything special. I'm just going to tell you to pause for a minute right where you are. You might not even know your sin, but God does. Do like David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's anything in my mind, any grievous thing within me. And where there is, adjudicate. Help me to get over that stuff. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's do that for a minute. But our hearts are tricky. They're deceitful above all else. We can't even discern our hearts sometimes. But it's in our heart that we are, our, our sin lies. We sin from our heart. We don't sin from our heads. And so, God, would you penetrate our hearts even today? Would you take these simple words of David? Would you take his narrative in 2 Samuel? And would you make it real to us? Some of us here today um, have some serious sin in our life. We have some things in our lives that we can't shake we tried praying it out. we tried talking it out. Some have possibly even sought help. And God, I pray that you would be an ever-present help in all of our time of need. For those who are here today who have never repented, God, I pray that you would lead them to a repentance that changes their disposition in life, that it would turn them from sinner to saint, that you would bestow on them the righteousness that comes from a sinner turning to Jesus. For those here who have been walking with you for years, I pray that repentance for all of us would be fresh today, that we would acknowledge our sin and following your mercy. pray that you cleanse us, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And as we come to your table today, Lord God, I pray that you would remind us of the gospel. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. He did it willingly. He incurred the pain that's due us because of our sin. That He died carrying our sin. And Lord God, you raised Him up. Thank you, Lord. Amen.